Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I hope all of you have been doing well since I was on the air last. And what do you know? Believe it or not, folks, we are now at the very end of this uh, podcast uh, series on the tragedy of Benedict Arnold. Now, I will uh, confess here, uh, I was convinced uh, while I was working on the um, epilogue, I didn't realize that it was going to be the epilogue when I first began uh, working on my next uh, podcast episode um, series. But after uh, doing all the necessary research leading up to this uh, podcast segment episode, I figured that, hey, based upon where I'm going and how I want this to all end, that this can be the last episode. I'm sure some of you probably would have liked to have had a few more episodes with this. But believe it or not, this episode isn't so much that it's, yes, the epilogue. But given that it is the epilogue, this episode will be the 12th episode to this series on the tragedy of Benedict Arnold. I'm sure many of you are wondering just how much more there was left to cover. What, what exactly else out there do we not know about Benedict Arnold? You know, oftentimes uh, from years past, I think it was fair to say that the textbooks told us that after his defection and after John Andre's hanging, that we were pretty much left to fend for ourselves in finding out exactly what became of Benedict Arnold, given he had uh, defected. It is probably fair to say that the textbooks from years past did mention to us that maybe he didn't get the true welcome that he felt he was entitled to by um, defecting when his actual defection had taken place. And that is true. And as a matter of fact, uh, this uh, epilogue, We'll talk. Uh, we will talk some more in this epilogue about how uh, the greater public of where Benedict and his family were living in England, how they uh, viewed him. It's easy to assume that just because someone defects, that everybody else will appreciate them for who they are and will respect why they defected. That's not always the case. We might be in for some uh, surprises when uh, Benedict Arnold and his wife Peggy and their extended family um, do come to live in England. I mean, they will be welcomed by um, a fair number of uh, of the people, but it would be fair to say that there will be a sector of the greater society that will not appreciate them regardless of where, regardless of the circumstances. In this uh, epilogue, we will learn about the... Um, we will learn about those three individuals. Uh, remember John Paulding, David Williams, Isaac Van Wert. We will learn about those three men and what they um, received as a result of their um, acts of uh, bravery in um, unfolding the uh, plot, or rather in foiling the plot that was intended for the uh, Americans to surrender West Point under Benedict Arnold's um, helm or rather I should say under Benedict Arnold's uh, leadership. We will learn about uh, Van Wert, Paulding, and Williams and learn uh, what they, um, and learn how they were um, recognized. It wasn't just so much a formal congratulations, but we will learn that they did in fact receive a very uh, nice, um, all, all three of them received a very nice accolade 
in all, which is a, a very important thing because they, those three men really were the uh, unsung heroes. We will also um, learn how, um, in the epilogue, we will also learn whether or not um, Benedict Arnold's wife, Peggy, ever saw her family again after Benedict had defected. I don't know if I talked some about that from the previous episode, but I think we should be reminded that, you know, it's one thing to um, turn on one side whom you had fought uh, courageously for. It's another thing to defect. Defections are not always what they are intended to be. And defections don't always guarantee that everybody uh, will welcome you in into their camp. Uh, we will also learn uh, whether or not there are any actual um, monuments or memorials in, in honoring Benedict Arnold. So let's get this show on the road for the epilogue to the tragedy of Benedict Arnold by Joyce Lee Malcolm. Here's our leadoff question. What exactly did Benedict Arnold do less than a week after John Andre's execution? Well, folks, it turns out that Benedict Arnold wrote a letter. He didn't write it to one particular individual. He just wrote one of these um, letters that we might think of as something that would go into like a pamphlet form that could be distributed to the greater public. He writes a letter titled, To the Inhabitants of America, which sought to explain his actions, including the greater need for reconciliation with England. So, in other words, he wants to explain to the greater public why he defected. And because he defected, he wants to explain why there must be reconciliation with England. In other words, we don't have to be under her jurisdiction, but why we as a nation need to still have some kind of relationship with her. Perhaps he might be referring to, say, like a trading relationship, you know, trade relations, but you know, here we are, you know, this war hasn't come to a formal end, so I think that's kind of the last thing that's on many Americans, um, on many of the uh, American people's minds, I should say. Arnold's letter pointed out to those whom were not only just loyalists, but other Americans who, yes, were patriots, but yet They've seen so much ravage, they've seen so many highs and lows, that they're not even 100% sure that when this is all said and done with, that they'll still have what's called a new United States to um, live under. So there's just a lot of um, mixed feelings. In other words, even if we do come away victorious, are we going to... Um, live under a government that's sound, that's, you know, non-tyrannical. There's just so many um, unknowns, and yet here we are still fighting a conflict. So this letter that Arnold uh, has written, um, it not only um, pertains to those whom are loyalists, but to other Americans, including uh, patriots, and perhaps even to neutrals. But I think by now in 1780 that the Loyalists and the Patriots far outweigh the Neutrals. So the letter uh, points out to those whom were Loyalists as well as other Americans suffering under a group of men 
this is vague here, folks, but under a group of men whose interests did not reflect the needs of the greater public. Was Benedict Arnold referring, perhaps, to um, a group of men, perhaps most notably in Congress? Uh, the answer is yes. After all, it is fair to say that many in Congress did not like Benedict Arnold. That was a true love-hate relationship um, in terms of 101 description. Is it fair to say that Benedict Arnold, by criticizing Congress, that he was not only referring to Congress as a select group of men, but that particular group of men whom uh, were only looking after their own personal interests and not that of the uh, greater public? Well, depending on whose side you're on, it, it could be 50-50. But as for this uh, group of men that Arnold was referring to, they um, their interests simply just did not reflect the needs of the greater public in terms of the greater war cause, war effort, let alone cause for independence. Arnold's overall purpose of the letter intended simply to promote his own desires by committing his life to reuniting um, with the mother country, that being England. So if that's what he wants to do, that's fine, but just remember, he's paid a significant price. In my opinion, it's a price that... Um, that, that is going to do more harm than good. Arnold's letter, though, did not result in mass uprisings, or rather, I should say, uh, a mass exodus amongst officers and soldiers of the Continental Army. That's a good thing to know. However, in 1781, well before uh, the Siege of Yorktown began, General George Washington unfortunately had to deal with two major rebellions from within the Continental Army. You know, it's so easy to think that this army's always been unified, even in the most trying of times, but believe me, folks, the Continental Army has seen its shares of not just lows, but has seen, it, has seen its shares of internal strife that um, has not been pretty, and yes, it has resulted in rebellions. So in 1781, General Washington is dealing with two major rebellions from within um, his army. The rebels demanded better treatment within the ranks of the army. In the midst of Arnold's letter, Arnold went as far as offering dissatisfied Continental troops, including officers, better opportunities by defecting sides. So this is not just about focusing on the individuals, but it's also about the soldiers and the officers, whom he thinks are totally dissatisfied, and while some could be, the irony to it is that nobody ever defected, which to me is a blessing. So yes, there were rebellions, but there were no defections. And despite all the attempts on Arnold's behalf per this letter written, <laughs> shortly after John, John Andre's execution, the letter alone could not eradicate Arnold's wrongdoing, given he abandoned the most, influ the most fundamental of all causes, and that was independence from England. Just think, five, five years earlier, yeah, he was all gung-ho, independence from England. And what do you know? He's allowed his personal ego, his, uh, his pride, his, um, his sense of honor, while all, you know, having honor is important, but honor itself can ha should have boundaries. You know, to me, I, I almost feel as though Benedict Arnold's chasing something that would be like the equivalent in today's time of the almighty dollar. He's trying to um, chase 
the mightiest of ranks, the mightiest of distinctions, and yet just when he's come short, he's always looking for someone else to blame or someone else has blamed him. It's almost as if he's allowed himself to be deliberately cursed. Of course, that could be a whole other discussion onto itself, but it might just be fair to say that Benedict Arnold has become one of those individuals who has never been 100% satisfied with anything that has come before him, even when it has been an accomplishment in the midst of someone else's not being satisfied at what he achieved. Maybe it's fair to say that we can't please everybody in life no matter what the circumstances are. We just need to do everything there is on our end to not be like those whom are not happy. Did many uh, British leaders, including most troops, ever fully trust or respect Benedict Arnold? Believe it or not, folks, uh, the answer is no. Despite Arnold getting the rank of Brigadier General, a handful of troops under his command were appalled by the actions he took, resulting in defection. The majority of the troops under his command, if not all of them, simply just were no longer interested in past military achievements at the war's onset. In other words, yes, Benedict Arnold may have achieved some greatness, but it didn't mean anything. Not so much because of the previous side he was on, but it's how he went about defecting. You know, yes, he had information to give to General Clinton on West Point that was valuable, but Benedict Arnold didn't really fit the—to me, he didn't fit the true um, model of being a British soldier. The only reason he's defecting is because he feels, to me, yes, part of it was that he wants, wanted to sell out West Point, and obviously that plot got foiled, but Benedict Arnold was just so desperate— when it came to me, he became all the more desperate in trying to fit in, and he thought by really by defecting that everybody on the British side would just welcome him. They would welcome him. They would treat him as if they were one of, as if he were one of, one of everyone else. And I'm beginning to think now that Benedict Arnold's going to be in for a real rude awakening. Soldiers under Arnold's command saw an officer whom was unpredictable. One instance or moment, Arnold could be seen as polite. Calm, kind, but if you stayed too long in his presence, Arnold's bad side emerged. Soldiers had no loyalty towards him, including officers who never fully embraced his presence. You know, I'm, I, it's probably fair to say that these uh, other officers and uh, the troops below Arnold, they're probably beginning to see him as someone who's more of a fraud. In other words, he's not the real deal. Just because he defected, that doesn't automatically qualify him as a true uh, gentleman. It doesn't automatically qualify him as someone whose loyalties are really what he says they are. In other words, did he really come flat out and say, my loyalties are to king and country? No. I mean, we don't have any recordings of it, but it is probably fair to say that he was probably not that type. Uh, given uh, Benedict Arnold's defection had caused so much uproar, is it fair to say that no matter where British Brigadier General Benedict Arnold went, his past never went away? And that is a definitive yes. 
prominent men like Thomas Jefferson, who was Virginia's governor at the time of Arnold's defection, went as far as offering a sum of 5,000 guineas. Of course, guineas at one time were a British unit of money, but they are, but that uh, unit of money is no longer in existence. But 5,000 guineas, that obviously was a lot of money for its time. So Thomas Jefferson offered a sum of 5,000 guineas for Arnold's capture. Given by December of 1780, Arnold was in Virginia. He led a force of 1,600 troops into Virginia, folks, where Virginia's government was taken by surprise. Now, Virginia, folks, being the largest of the 13 colonies, became very vulnerable in 1780. Virginia's capital moved further inland from Williamsburg to Richmond in May of 1780, uh, and the reason for that was because Thomas Jefferson was convinced by moving the capital inland that, um, that the chances of the British invading Virginia, especially its capital, being now further inland, would be pretty slim. If we stayed in Williamsburg, we probably would have seen a greater likelihood. Well, for those of you who were with me when we talked about Jack Jewett's famous ride um, that basically not only saved Thomas Jefferson's life, but saved all of the um, members, it saved a good number of the members of the Virginia uh, General Assembly, including other noteworthy uh, Virginians like Patrick Henry, uh, Archibald Carey, uh, Daniel Boone. Yeah, believe it or not, folks, Daniel Boone was in the um, was present uh, at the time when Jack Jewett um, had uh, warned everybody that the British were coming, that you all need to uh, evacuate. And you know, Thomas Jefferson, yes, had been warned by Jack Jewett, and he did take the warning seriously. But he was also in the middle of getting all the government uh, papers secured so that they wouldn't fall into enemy hands. He went out outside his home and didn't see anything. He peered through his telescope, so he was getting ready to go back inside. Little did Jefferson know that um, Colonel uh, Banastray Tarleton's uh, forces were had already made it up to the hilltop of Monticello. They were approached by um, some of Jefferson's slaves who were able to stall them. Jefferson noticed that his scabbard, which was his sword, was missing. He went back to retrieve his sword, but he decided one more time to, um, he set up his tripod and he got out his telescope to see exactly if there was anything else suspicious. And what do you know? He saw British soldiers on horse, horseback coming up the mountain. It was there, folks, that he, um, he made his bold move and got out in the nick of time. Had Jefferson not gone back and gotten his uh, scabbard, folks, his sword, he would have been captured right away by the British. Jefferson, along with other members of the government, would have been taken back to England, tried for um, offenses such as uh, treason, you know, that is uh, no longer being loyal to England. They would have died uh, a traitor's death. And ultimately, this war would have um, come to an unfortunate end where all of uh, Britain's subjects, the 13 colonies, would have been forced to have uh, become once again subjects to the crown. So the story here, folks, in this case, is that no matter how further inland your capital is, it doesn't mean that you're safe. The lesson here, folks, is that, you know, yes, your capital could be further inland, 
but it's just as immune as having a capital along the coast. Regardless of uh, how big the rewards were in trying to capture Benedict Arnold, the ex-American officer always seemed to be one step ahead. While Arnold sought revenge from a fighting or militaristic standpoint, he also took up selling, advertising propaganda to all persons willing to take up arms with the crown. You know, it's one thing to want to sell or advertise propaganda, getting people to take a side. If you spend more time doing that versus uh, spending time on a battlefield, that is, to me, that could be one way that you might lose respect from those whom are serving below you, being the troops. Did Benedict Arnold partake in the siege of Yorktown, fall 1781? No. It turns out in June of 1781, uh, Arnold returned to New York, where two months afterwards, Peggy gave birth to another boy named James Robertson, whom was named for New York's royal, whom was named for the royal governor of New York. The start of September 1781 saw Arnold get selected to command expedition into Connecticut, his home state. He got this um, post for commanding an expedition into Connecticut through approval from General uh, Henry Clinton. This was a mission that, um, that to me, ultimately uh, sealed his fate within the, within the home state of Connecticut, that is, from within the people of Connecticut. The mission involved attacking the port of New London, which was home to, a large, to large supplies of materials that the Continental Army uh, depended upon. Arnold led over 1,700 men into New London on September 4th, 1781, inflicting damage that was the equivalent to half a million dollars in today's money, folks. British forces went about capturing Fort Griswold, and there's no connection to Clark Griswold, a.k.a. National Lampoon's Vacation. <laughs> Not trying to be funny here, but just, just a little reminder. So... Yes, British forces did go about capturing Fort Griswold, and despite the atrocities committed, Benedict Arnold did not order them, yet he wasn't on site, folks. He was out on the ship, overlooking everything taking place. Had he been on site, there is some likelihood that if he had enough smarts, he could have probably prevented the tragedy, but chose not to. Despite conquering Fort Griswold, Arnold's men went about burning American ships in New London, or let alone in New London's harbor, along with all warehouses and wharfs. Over a hundred families, folks, were left homeless, as many personal homes weren't spared. The wrath of destruction under Arnold's watch or command in his home state of Connecticut resulted with further damage to personal image, reputation. The Connecticut campaign was Arnold's last. I can only imagine what Benedict's mother, she would have been rolling in her grave if she knew what her son had done. It was bad enough her son defected. That's bad enough, but the fact that he came into Connecticut and inflicted damage upon a port... Not just a port, not just upon ships, not just on warehouses, but on people whose livelihoods were dependent upon this port. 
whose livelihoods were dependent upon the goods located in, in the warehouses that were going elsewhere, or perhaps goods that came in. People's livelihoods were destroyed. They, they probably weren't the same. It's not like they could just go call up State Farm or Progressive and say, hey, you know, we need to file a claim for our losses. It would probably take an eternity for, some, for many of these families to ever uh, recover from their losses. But did Benedict Arnold need to go as far as seeing to it that people from his home state suffered because of a stupid choice he made? all in the means of defecting. These are the dangers with loyalties, folks. You know, loyalties make people do things that are unbecoming, especially when it comes to changing loyalties. I remember from the movie The Patriot with uh, the late Heath Ledger, Mel Gibson, there was a scene uh, towards the very end of the movie where um, a British officer portraying uh, Colonel Bannister Tarleton comes to the church and he said the following, This town's been giving aid to Benjamin Martin. I'd like to know who's been providing him with assistance. If any of you come forward, you will be forgiven of your wrongdoings, or I should say of your treason. Well, one man did. He came, he came before the congregation and said, This man, being the man who played Mr. Peter Howard, he said, This man here has been giving aid to Martin. And he's been giving aid to Martin in X, Y, and Z ways. Mr. Howard said, quiet, you damn fool. In other words, the man who came forward and accused Mr. Howard not only sold Mr. Howard out, but he sold the, the community out as well. The man portraying uh, Colonel Tarleton said, thank you. And then the gentleman who fell for the bait said, um, are, am I to be forgiven? He said, you will be forgiven, but that's between you and God. And of course, sadly, the, the church doors were shut and the British uh, soldiers all torched the church. Everybody inside died because one man was stupid enough to defect. Not just defect, but fall for a British officer's bait. So sadly, um, because of Benedict Arnold's resentment or whatever jealousies he felt, whatever injustices he thought had been incurred upon him from within the Continental Army, now made him go about doing something that had even more catastrophic consequences, and that was to not only burn the port of New London, but everything in its wake. That also meant um, leaving over 100 families homeless. There is a price to pay when you, choose, when you um, change sides especially when you don't um, when you no longer value your boundaries or your limits. And I can't imagine what the Lathrops, uh, Peggy's um, cousins, the Lathrops, they would have been rolling in their graves too, knowing that they took Benedict under their wings, had him apprenticed in their apothecary shop. How could you do all this? Yes, people make mistakes, but some mistakes can't be uh, taken back. To me, these are mistakes here that simply cannot be um, taken back. They can't be forgiven. Where did uh, December of 1781 take Benedict, his wife Peggy, and their two young sons? The family went about sailing across the Atlantic Ocean where they journeyed to England living in exile. Well, they got to go somewhere. Arnold was well treated, believe it or not, folks, by King George III 
including um, a fair number of uh, government ministers. He was acknowledged at court where he received sums of money for personal losses in America. The Crown went as far as providing Arnold with large land grants of land in Canada. Peggy was given a pension of 500 pounds yearly. Benedict and Peggy would go on to have three more children. Each of the Arnold children got 100 pounds per year. This all seems grand, folks, but there is a uh, catch to it. It's one thing to be in exile in England, or anywhere else for that matter, but exile in England was not 100% grand for Mr. and Mrs. Arnold. Here's one example. Silas Dean, who was one of Arnold's um, close friends from uh, Connecticut days, he, he too was living in exile in London, he still kept in touch with Benedict Arnold, but refused to meet or see Arnold publicly. But only did he go about um, seeing Benedict Arnold privately. Arnold was booed, the Arnolds rather, I should say, were booed by people when attending theatrical plays. Benedict Arnold aligned himself as a Tory. You know, in, in today's uh, modern British uh, day political system, the two major parties are uh, Labour and uh, Tory. Uh, the Tories are conservative, uh, the Labours are liberal. So Benedict Arnold aligned himself as a Tory, given the opposing party, blasted, condemned his actions at West Point. So <laughs> here's a rule of thumb, folks. Just because you've defected, just because you're living in exile, it doesn't mean that everybody in England approved of your actions that led to your defection. So it is fair to say that there is one political party in England at this time that has condemned his actions. So at least it is fair to say that at least there is some, there still is a common sense in England, even though it was, even though her subjects once were under her control, but it is fair to say that there are still, that there still is enough of the English population in England whom condone the actions of someone who so desperately wanted to sell out his country only to not get the full um, recognition that he felt he was entitled to even after uh, defecting. Would Benedict and Peggy spend time in Canada? Yes. Well, it makes sense, it makes sense if he's been given uh, large land grants. So starting in um, 1785, Benedict, Benedict and his son Richard, from his first marriage, um, came to St. John's, New Brunswick, where they engaged in land dealings to establishing a business involving trade um, with the West Indies. Despite Peggy's arrival into Canada come 1787, Benedict came into a series of bad investments, including lawsuits. Just when th things look great... Just when it looks like everything's going um, well, you might be on the verge of, of some kind of a comeback. All of a sudden, things take a turn, um, take a sour turn, and things aren't as grand as what they, uh, what you may have uh, envisioned them to to have wanted to have been. 1787. Of course, when I think of the year 1787, I think of um, of, the, of that year being the one where um, delegates came from, delegates from 12 of the 13 states came to Philadelphia. 
to scrap the Articles of Confederation, or at the time they thought they were going to revise the Articles of Confederation, but they ultimately scrapped it all together and replaced it with something far more sophisticated that is still around today, and I certainly hope it'll still be around for as long as possible, because it is the oldest Republican form, uh, Republican document form in the world today, the United States Constitution. So that's what I think of when I think of the year 1787, but 1787 is not a good year for the Arnolds. Peggy did come back to uh, America. She uh, visited her father and family in Philadelphia, and she hadn't seen them in probably about seven years, folks. So remember, there's no FaceTime, no Skype. The only way you're communicating is by letters. Who's to say by the time you send a letter and it, it gets 3,000 miles across the ocean, whether it's from the United States or to England, that, that whoever is receiving it, once they read it, is that family member or relative still alive? You just don't know. But the good news is that Peggy's father and many of her other uh, relatives are still alive, but this will be the last time she ever sees them in person. Although her family was glad to see her again, former friends, friends that she could count on as friends, didn't take kind to her return. She got frowned upon. Pe Peggy's visit is one of mixed feelings. The Arnold family spent roughly close to seven years in Canada. They returned to Britain in 1791 and settled in London. Arnold sought to assist Parliament in other ways possible, most notably in 1798 when Britain and France would uh, go about going to war against one another, but his requests got denied. Maybe it's fair to say that Parliament had um, wanted new faces, new ideas, and maybe they were beginning to see that Benedict Arnold was perhaps past his time. Did Benedict Arnold's health begin declining around the start of the 19th century? Yes. Come January 1801, just two months before Thomas Jefferson became America's third president, Benedict Arnold started showing more health problems. However, his conditions that he was experiencing didn't happen overnight. They uh, dated back to the early years of the Revolutionary War's onset. Arnold uh, battled with what was called, or what we know today still, as gout. Gout is, an inf is what we call inflammatory arthritis. He had been battling this since 1775, the year which the first shots were fired around the world at Lexington and Concord. By, by June 10, 1801, he showed signs of what is called delirium. Delirium is a syndrome contributing to uh, disturbances, various disturbances, that is, ranging from inattention, or rather I should say ranging from attention, awareness, perceptual feelings, from hallucinations and delusions. Scary. Well, four days later, folks, June 14th, 1801, just um, before or right around 6 a.m. on the morning of uh, June 14th, 1801, after four days of undergoing uh, delirium, Benedict Arnold dies at the age of 60. 
he and many of y'all are probably wondering, okay, if he dies in England, are his ashes returned to the United States or is he buried in England? Well, to answer that question, Benedict Arnold is buried. He got buried and still remains buried at St. Mary's Church in Battersea, England, a London uh, borough of Wandsworth in what's referred to as Southwest London. Arnold's funeral was won without, without any military honors. And perhaps, perhaps it's a blessing that there were no military honors. Remember, folks, the British, British officers, troops, they didn't call him a savior. They didn't really view him as someone who really was the real deal. Yes, he may have um, performed a mission in Connecticut that uh, resulted in terrible plunder and destruction, but even that mission alone, yes, it was approved by General Henry Clinton. I don't recall reading anywhere where he got kudos for it. It was almost as if Benedict Arnold was just trying to achieve some form of fame on his end to say, hey, I did make a name for myself at the expense of defecting. But even by defecting, folks, it might be fair to say that just because you defect, could it be fair to say that maybe the grass isn't always green, or perhaps the grass isn't as always green as you would envision it to be? Sometimes we might get tempted to want to do something, and while the temptations are there, you have to think long and hard about what it is that you want. You know, yes, there are risks in life to take, and risks are not always bad. But sometimes decisions that do get made not only impact you, but they impact everyone else around you. Of course, it obviously didn't bother Peggy Shippen that Benedict defected, because Peggy was part of it. Matter of fact, we're going to talk more about Peggy here shortly, uh, given now that Benedict has uh, passed on. So yes, there was no um, military honors to me, which is a blessing. He didn't deserve any. Benedict left a small estate as a result of remaining outstanding debts to Peggy. While he was dying, he constantly went about worrying over his worrying over his family's future. His, in other words, his family's f future in terms of their well-being in both England and America, or I should say the United States. Hannah Arnold. I'm sure many of you are now wondering whatever happened to Hannah. Was she still alive when her brother died? Uh, yes, she was, folks. Hannah, uh, but Hannah didn't go to England, and I don't blame her. I don't think she would have felt comfortable coming to England knowing that, knowing not only what her brother had done, but that her brother, her brother had just caused so much trouble. He caused a lot of problems in the end when he defected from the from the Americans to the British, but yet he never. He never got um, the full recognition he thought he would deserve. Why should his sister be stuck in the middle of his drama? She shouldn't. It turns out, though, that Hannah Arnold, uh, Benedict's sister, she never married. She died in 1803 at the age of 61. Uh, she was born a year after uh, her brother. And um, Hannah... Yeah, she was 61 when she died, and it would be fair to say that she lived long enough to see the United States um, 
acquire what we now know as what became known as the Louisiana Purchase, acquiring over acquiring thousands of acres, maybe ten thousand at most, but it was a large sum of acreage from France that, where in the long run, the territory of the United States would ultimately double. So. Benedict's sister Hannah lived long enough to um, see all that happened. All that happened, rather, I should say. No sympathies were issued anywhere in the United States once learning of Arnold's death, and rightfully so. But yet in England, Arnold never got the recognition he, en he envisioned. And there are lots of reasons why, but if I could think of one, how about most notably due to his abandoning of John Andre, the British spy contact whom got hung while Arnold failed to turn himself in, sparing his counterpart's life. To me, what Benedict Arnold should have done if he was smart enough, and he really could have done it, he could have turned himself in. He could have said, hey, hang me. Spare John Andre. He's the one that's taken the brunt for my actions. You know, that's it's all wishful thinking right there in a perfect world. But who's to say that if Benedict Arnold got hung, then we could all say that what happened at Saratoga would have never had any meaning to have begun with. Remember when he got shot at Saratoga, what did he say? I wish it had been my heart. In other words, I just wished I had died on the battlefield. I would have died a martyr. Well, did Benedict Arnold die a martyr? No, he didn't. Peggy Shippen had seven children with Benedict Arnold, five lived to adulthood. British documents from 1792 confirmed that Peggy Shippen Arnold had been paid 350 pounds for handling all private dispatches after, for handling all private dispatches. That, I don't know what that equates to in modern day money, folks, but obviously it's a hefty sum. Peggy, remember folks, Peggy Shippen Arnold was not, was not an innocent party. She knew what was going on. Remember the previous podcast when she fainted? That was done on purpose to get attention. She knew what was going on. She knew that John Andre was going to take the fall for this. She conspired. She was part of a conspiracy, folks, where two or more people partake in doing something um, dangerous, something that's overt, illegal. I don't know if illegal is a definitive word, but conspiracy, uh, but it, it, she, she uh, took part in a broad conspiracy, let's put it that way, that uh, with the overall intent of Benedict Arnold selling out his country and surrendering West Point to the British. So after um, Benedict uh, passed away, Peggy sold all uh, contents of their home, including the home itself, along with various personal belongings of hers, to pay off all of her husband's remaining outstanding debts. On August 24th, 1804, Margaret Peggy Shippen Arnold, who was the highest paid spy throughout the American Revolutionary War, believe it or not, folks, she was the highest paid spy throughout the, the American Revolutionary War. She died at the age of 44. To us, that's not old. I don't know if it was considered old age at that time, maybe given that most people didn't live to be in their 40s or close to 50, but she died at the age of 44. They, most people believe that she died from cancer. 
A day later, on August 25th, she was buried at St. Mary's uh, Battersea, at St. Mary's Church in Battersea, England, with her husband. And it turns out, folks, that Peggy's father, Edward Shippen, died two years later in uh, 1806. That's also the same year that Horatio Gates, the officer who snubbed Benedict Arnold. I often wonder if Horatio Gates had not snubbed him at Saratoga, what would have become of Arnold? We'll never know. But Horatio Gates died in 1806. Are there any monuments uh, paying tribute to Benedict Arnold still in existence? Yes, there are two. There are two uh, that are at uh, Saratoga, New York, 1777 Battle of Saratoga Campaign. It was Arnold's last fought as an officer in the Continental Army. Monument, or I should say Memorial Number 1, is a boot monument. It honors Benedict Arnold's contributions at both battles of Saratoga, Freeman's Farm, and Bemis Heights. But the monument itself does not mention Arnold's actual name. Memorial number two, being the Saratoga Battle Monument, illustrates or reflects the turning point of the American Revolutionary War, being the British surrender under General John Burgoyne to the Continental Army under General Horatio Gates. This monument contains four spots that were meant for life-size bronze statues of American commanders affiliated with the Saratoga battle. Facing north, you have General Horatio Gates, whom anticipated the arrival of the British Army coming southward. Facing east, you would have had General Philip Schuyler, whose estate was east of the battlefield site, which got burned by the British as they retreated north from the battlefield. Facing west is a statue of Colonel Daniel Morgan, whose forces, comprised of riflemen and light infantry, placed west of the present-day memorial where they prevented British forces from making a complete escape. Facing south, folks, pay very careful attention here. Facing south is an empty spot. This empty spot was intended to, to have a statue of Benedict Arnold, the Boot Monument, it would be fair to say that the Boot Monument represents Arnold's last stand of heroism as an officer on the battlefield. When he got shot, he said yes. He said the following, I wish it had been my heart, not my leg. In other words, if he had been shot in the heart, he would have died on the battlefield. He would have been uh, considered a martyr. Knowing that he had already, knowing he was already fighting for a cause that was noble, and that is uh, separation from England, but knowing that he risked it all by defying orders from above, given that he had been relegated to a tent, he couldn't stand it no more, he couldn't take it no more. He went out and risked it all, gave the troops that extra boost of encouragement they needed to finish the job, to to carry the day into glory, only to be shot from, only to be shot and have the horse fall on him. Had Arnold died, yes, he would have, um, he would have uh, gone down in glory, as a true martyr. The empty spot at Saratoga Battle Monument represents what could have been had Arnold not committed the most egregious of actions, selling out West Point to the British. While the West Point 
plot was foiled, Arnold's defection to the enemy sealed his fate, including a complete fall from grace. Yeah, Arnold, like everyone else, you, we're all, we all have grace, but it's up to us as how we choose to exercise our grace. We may have it today, but if we're not careful and we engage in activities that result in us doing things that are unbecoming, not only does it damage our uh, reputation or our image, it could lead us to fall from grace to where to where um, getting that grace back would take an eternity. And in the case of Benedict Arnold, that just simply never happened. And perhaps it was rightfully so for it to have not happened. No memorials. There are no memorials honoring Arnold in Connecticut. I think that's a, a rightful uh, answer to not find any memorials in Connecticut uh, honoring Benedict Arnold. However, there is a monument that dates back to 1830, known, and it's still in existence today. It's called the Groton Monument. It was established in remembrance of the Continental troops massacred by British troops under Arnold's watch in the midst of surrendering Fort Griswold during the Battle of Groton Heights. So at least we can say that that um, that this monument honors those whose lives were tragically taken at the expense at the expense of a um, of a defector who no longer cared about where his uh, about where his roots had taken him, how he uh, overcame misfortunes, knowing that he had a father who was an alcoholic who abandoned. Well, he didn't abandon. He squandered everything he uh, he earned. We would have thought that maybe you know Be you know Benedict didn't become an alcoholic, but he became a traitor, which is bad. Well, in that day and time, it would have been fair to say that both were bad, because being an alcoholic and a traitor, you're either way, regardless of which one you commit, you're shunned by the community as a whole. No excuses, no questions asked. Okay, now we're going to uh, move on to some uh, important, um, relevant information involving those three men whom, um, in my opinions, in my opinion, they may have been the one that the ones that ultimately saved the American Revolution from falling um, into enemy's hand, enemy hands. Where West Point um, had the plot of West Point not been uh, foiled, um, we could have been looking at a different outcome. So what did the Continental Congress go about doing come November 3rd, 1780, four weeks and four days after John Andre's hanging execution, which happened um, on um, at the start of uh, October 1780? Congress gave John Paulding, David Williams, and Isaac Van Wert silver medals known as the Fidelity Medallion, which was... At the time, it was the first um, decoration of of U.S. military, but it just so happens that it's the oldest decoration of U.S. military. But here's the catch. The Fidelity Medallion was only issued once. And it was only issued once in 1780, folks. The medal itself was intended for a specific event. And this was the capture of Benedict Arnold's spy contact, which foiled the plot to surrender West Point to the British. 
These were just, you know, average Joe men. All three of these men, folks, um, are privates. They were privates, rather, I should say. Militiamen, uh, Paulding, John Paulding, uh, David Williams, and Isaac Van Wart all had the rank of private. Each man received a pension of $200 per year, which was a lot of money for its time. Isaac Van Wart's medallion is still in existence today. It's in the hands of a family descendant in uh, New York's Westchester County. Sadly, um, well, before I get to that part, uh, Colonel John Paulding and David, um, not Colonel, I should say, Private John Paulding and Private David Williams's medallions were each uh, given to the New York Historical Society in 1905. But in the year 1975, just one year before um, the United States celebrated its bicentennial 200th uh, birthday, 1975 saw the year 1975 saw Private John Paulding and Private David Williams's medallions get stolen, including John Andre's pocket watch that was uh, given. Uh, I don't know which of the three received it after they captured him and after he was hung. But to this day, these items still remain missing. Sad to think that somebody would have stolen those um, two men's medallions. Who would want to do that? I don't know. I, I really don't know. Perhaps someone who's just plain ignorant. Hopefully it wasn't someone related to Benedict Arnold. But here's something else that's really uh, cool about John Paulding. Isaac Van Wert and David Williams. Each of each of these men had counties named in their honor in uh, northwestern Ohio. There are towns called Paulding, Van Wert, and and Williams, uh, rather their counties, Paulding, Williams, and Van Wert counties. Northwest Ohio, that's where Toledo is. Uh, it's not far from the Ohio-Indiana line. Uh, near uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. So if you know of other places in Ohio, like Defiance, Bryan, Archbold, Pioneer, Salina. Also think of Paulding, um, Paulding, Ohio, Van Wert. And the reason I know some of these other places, folks, is because, I, for one, I work in transportation, and there is an Estes Express Lines terminal in Fort Wayne, Indiana, that services um, those cities, those cities or towns that I just mentioned, including Paulding, Ohio. So when you think of Paulding, Ohio, and Van Wert, you could think of uh, John Paulding, and uh, Isaac Van Wert, and Williams County. You think of David Williams, including the counties uh, for Paulding and Van Wert for John Paulding and Isaac Van Wert. But these three men, these three men are the unsung heroes, folks. Without these three, these three men on uh, on night watch duty. Maybe John Andre would have just gotten through uh, without getting detected. Had these three men not gone above and beyond to thoroughly search John Andre, history could have been totally rewritten for all the wrong reasons. Sometimes it pays to really search very carefully, and it mean, even if it means searching a person whom you think is suspicious, even if it means asking them to take their boots off, only to find a bulge in their stocking with documents that ultimately could have sealed America's fate. Going above and beyond the call of duty, these three men, to me, are some of the most unique heroes, some of the most unique of many heroes whose stories have been forgotten 
until reading this book, The Tragedy of Benedict Arnold. They're not the tragedy. Benedict Arnold was. But these three men are the saviors at a time when Americans weren't sure what the ultimate outcome was going to be. We're already into, what, year five, year six of this war? But how is it going to end? But is it fair to say that many of America's people felt they were angered by Benedict Arnold's defection, but could it be fair to say that they were relieved to know that at least the plot was foiled? Yes. And it also turns out that in 1853, a monument was built on the spot um, where John Andre got captured, honoring these three men's actions. Our final uh, question to this, to the epilogue, to the tragedy of Benedict Arnold is the following. Could Benedict Arnold best be characterized as someone who didn't respect boundaries? Yes. Arnold's world was one where a man's personal honor and image weren't to be taken lightly. In the midst of young Benedict's father's disgrace, he strove to do whatever there was in making a better name for himself. Benedict always seemed to want more, and come Revolutionary War time, he got opportunities. And while there were successes, conflict from within showed up, which ultimately drove this young man down the wrong path. Yes, Benedict Arnold was wounded at Saratoga on October 7, 1777, and yes, he was sent to um, a hospital in Albany, New York, to recover. But had he just retired from the fight and returned to his family in Connecticut, his honor would have remained intact. The community would have still revered him. And no great defection would have taken place. Think about it, folks. Sometimes, you know, in life, sometimes there's a time to be on the stage and a time to be off. Maybe Benedict Arnold's time off the stage should have officially ended after Saratoga. He may not have achieved all the glory he wanted, but he would have achieved enough glory to have still been considered by his own people as a hero. Yes, he didn't have to please Congress, but at least he would have known in his mind that he that he he fought left and right. He fought the good fight, knowing that he didn't lose without any excuses. To me, he didn't lose any excuses. He he risked his own life by defying Horatio Gates, giving the troops at Saratoga that last push they needed to defeat Burgoyne's army. But achieving fame does come at a price, and Benedict Arnold sadly did not know where to stop. An addiction, folks, an addiction that not only had uh, an impact perhaps on the relationship with his sister Hannah, but also with the rest of America, and a relationship that never was meant to be in England. No matter where Benedict Arnold went, conflict was there, but he didn't know how to, but he just could not deal with it. He always seemed to take matters into his own hands. And when he did, he paid a price. And by defecting to the British, the grass wasn't green. It wasn't 100% green. He, you know, defection alone is bad enough, but when he, um, but when he uh, destroyed his own uh, community, uh, destroyed the community of New London, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, New London, Connecticut. So, yes, he's buried in England, but 
without any mil- he w- but not without any military honors. He's just uh, average Joe, but he's not uh, first in the hearts of his fellow countrymen like George Washington was. Well, thank you for your time as always, and thank you for being such great listeners. I will be back on the air here soon with another new series. Take care and stay safe. <laughs>